Finding Us. This is episode 22, Sleepless in Seattle from 1993. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Mike, here to talk about this movie in which Tom Hanks was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy, which, weirdly enough, so that same year at the Golden Globes, he gets nominated for Best Actor in a Drama for Philadelphia and wins that. I've still never seen Philadelphia. We'll get to that in two weeks. That's the next movie that we're doing. It's heavy, man. It's heavy. Oh, boy. But you can't compare, I don't think, this to a movie in which he gets AIDS and dies, question mark? I'll tell you this much. I cried in both movies, watching both films, and this is the first wow. time I saw this. One of my favorite lines from the movie Scrooge, anytime this happens, it was like Niagara Falls in my living room. When I watched oh, this movie. man. It was unexpected. I'll just say that. <laughs> well, with us tonight, we have a professional crier. You heard her last episode talking about the waterworks of Niagara Falls in her living room while watching A League of Their Own. We have welcome back from Wistful Thinking, Miss Cara Gail O'Regan. Hello, Cara. Hello. I think I only cried four times during this. Okay, so I need to say up front, I did not cry. I did get chills at the end when they see each other on the rooftop. I think, and Mike, I want you to do your your plot summary, and I want to actually explain what the movie's actually about, but I feel like in this movie, you could see this movie that Tom Hanks thinks Meg Ryan's a ghost. Like, she just <laughs> appears places, and it's just like, I'm here, get used to it. It's like, wait, where, who are you? Like, she almost gets run over. It's just like, who is this woman? Like, this ethereal being, you know, the way that he's saying nothing is perfect, no one is perfect, and he, like, stops himself when he sees her for the first time, like this, like, beautiful woman that is everything he wants. I think there is definitely a, probably, you know, there should be if there's not, a YouTube video where someone dives down a rabbit hole about how she was dead the entire time and none of this is real and it's all like, it's a Jacob's Ladder situation in the kid's head. I feel like it's a possibility. That's all I'm saying. You know what I think it is? It's a, it's a reverse Cities of Angels action happening. Oh, yes. <laughs> where she's the angel. Absolutely. I was trying to remember why I was getting such City of Angels vibes and I realized, oh, just now, because she's in that. But Meg Ryan, obviously, back from Joe vs. the Volcano. This is the part two of our Meg Ryan triptych coming up later. Carol will be on once again to talk about You've Got Mail. So stick around for that in, I don't know, six or seven episodes, whatever. But before we go further, Mike, please explain to anyone who has not seen this movie, which is not as... This feels like the kind of movie that should be available to stream for free. This just feels like the kind of comfort blanket to people that it should just be available. And it's not. Like, you have to pay for this. Like, I don't know why I'm quoting other movies, but in Wayne's world there's like you know when he's talking about like Frampton comes alive there they would issue you that if you lived in the suburbs you just get like a free copy sent to you in the mail I feel like people should just get this movie sent to them for free (laughs) yeah like once if you are a woman once you turn 35 you just get a copy of this in the mail oh I'm, I'm pretty sure my mom got a VHS copy of it that way I'm sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, I could also see this opening up a whole other avenue to bereaved men, you know, widowers and things like like that nature. Like, like you send them the dirty dozen. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny scene. That's a great moment. All improvised, that scene. Completely oh. improvised on the spot. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but Mike, if people have not received their copy, their VHS copy in the mail of Sleepless in Seattle, please explain okay. what this movie is about. All right. This is going to be really pretty short. It's off and off the cuff. Tom Hanks, when the movie starts, his wife has just passed away and he is a single father. And he one day his son calls into a talk show on the radio about um, relationships and gets his father on the line with the therapist. 
and listening on the other end uh, in her car, and it happens to be Christmas, I think. So listening in her car is Meg Ryan, who is a reporter, and she's very interested in the story. It starts popping up like throughout her life. It's part of her uh, assignment at work. She's a reporter. She ends up pursuing Tom Hanks, who's known as Sleepless in Seattle, his call sign on the radio show. And yeah, just through Hollywood magic and rom-com romance uh, fantasy, they end up getting together at the end at the top of the Empire State Building. I mean, a whole lot of stuff is going on, but basically, yes, Meg Ryan hears about this on the radio, uh, seeks him out, and they do indeed end up together in the end. Happily ever after? Question mark. I guess, because they sort of seem meant to be together, but we don't know. We don't see. We don't know what happened. She knows everything about him, and he knows nothing about her, but the son knows quite a bit. But, like, he knows nothing except that she's beautiful. (laughs) So I had never seen this movie before. I think, Carrie, you had seen this. Now, you've seen this twice now, but you watched it both times before tonight, right? Like, you had not seen it. Have you seen this before or no? Yeah. I think I had maybe seen it once or twice in, like, the mid-90s. And then I watched it twice in two days. Mike, what about you? Had you seen it before, or is this your first time, too? No, so this is my very first time. This is one of those other movies. I wouldn't say I actively avoided it, but I just never had any interest in it for whatever reason. And which is strange, because Nora Ephron wrote one of my all-time favorite movies ever, My Blue Heaven. Huh, okay. Her husband wrote Goodfellas, and like at the time he was interviewing Henry Hill, she was like listening in, and it's kind of a pseudo-sequel to, to Goodfellas, if you've ever seen it, but it, that's a terrific movie. But this movie totally won me over, I have to say. Like, I... I there's never a big rom-com guy or, or like back then they used to call them chick flicks I think that's a terrible sort of misnomer but because like I get it now like this movie sort of opened my eyes to the whole genre and I understand and I liked it quite a bit wait this movie say. did tonight like this this time this you you had your eyes open to rom-coms this week because of this movie yeah pretty much like this for some reason with this one it clicks like I understand I get I understand the genre now like I get this I get the whole thing and, I, like, and I love it now like I don't know I know I've seen a, I've seen a bunch but they've but always like, seemed so manu- like so cookie cutter this one really feels like unique. wait this doesn't <laughs> well, no. I mean, the the way that sequences go on and on and the structure of it and how it pulls from other movies and at times there's like animation and things. I think it's like wholly like its own kind of thing within the genre. So here's the thing about this movie that I think is will kind of like bridge the gap between where the two of you <laughs> Are. I do. I do want to clarify. Like, I do not like hate this movie. I'm just like I'm stunned because we did. Like, I fell in love with rom coms because of Cage Club, because of Nicolas Cage and rom coms. Right. And I feel like we've seen a bunch of very good ones to then just have this one be like. Because I don't think this is like a transcendent experience. Well, it's like a handbook for how to watch a rom com. It like okay. teaches you what a rom com is and how to watch and enjoy it because it's this kind of meta narrative about rom-coms you know it's like the ultimate rom-com kind of i I, i'm down with that like it almost there's something meta about it without breaking the fourth wall like the way that it's there's something about the characterization of the people and something about it in the movie they're actually watching a specific well i don't know if a fair an affair to remember yeah i don't know if that's technically a rom-com i don't think there's much comedy in that but they're watching the movie they're talking about the movie and they're having this kind of ongoing conversation about like expectations versus reality and like what we expect of relationships and what we see in the movies versus like what they are in real life yes the, the quote i think is 
is. That's your problem. You don't want to be in love. You want to be in love in a movie. Mm-hmm. You, there's the idealized version, which this is. Like, I guess it's 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 meta in that way, and it is. I think the problem that I kind of had with it is that it wasn't exactly the movie that I thought it was going to be. And again, not knowing anything about anything. And I feel like this also happened this summer in my Julia Roberts mini binge, which I talked about on Not Her Again with Michael DiManico. When I saw My Best Friend's Wedding, I did not realize that it was going to be Dermot Mulrooney and Julia Roberts as best friends. Like, that didn't click in my brain. I was thinking, like, it was two women best friends or something. Like, I was just like, I just had this weird kind of preconceived notion of what it was going to be, and it took me time to sort of align myself within the world. And so here I just thought, I guess there's kind of two different core basic kinds of rom-coms. It's like where they either know each other and they sort of bicker and bicker and in the end they get together. Or I guess this is the other one where like they just don't know each other at all and then they finally meet and the movie ends. But I was kind of hoping for, especially after Joe vs. Volcano and how great they are together on screen, like the chemistry, I was hoping for more Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan and they're on screen together for like two minutes. Yeah. And I just sort of wanted more of that. Like I wanted them in whatever regard, whatever capacity, together as opposed to trying to basically find unknowingly trying to find one another have you seen when harry met sally not yet no oh my goodness i've seen it but i dislike it interesting interesting why but mike have you seen it since your brain was open no you're not the expanding brain me see you got you gotta go back i gotta rewatch it now Yeah. yeah So When Harry Met Sally was also at least partially written by Nora Ephron, uh, and it was directed by uh, Rob Reiner. And so um, when they were working on the script for When Harry Met Sally, they felt like they couldn't really get an authentic female voice for the character of Sally, and that was when they brought Nora on board. And that's also Meg Ryan. I mean, Meg Ryan as Sally is like... She's perfect. It's so good. It's like all of the kind of quirkiness from this movie, but less, maybe more annoying. I don't know. I just like that one a lot more than I like this one. I remember my problem being more of the of the um, Billy Crystal. Yeah. Vibe. Like I think it's just him because I love the other stuff with um, Carrie Fisher and everything, and like I do love Meg Ryan in that. So yeah, I, I definitely have to give it a, a rewatch. At one point, this movie was supposed to be directed by Gary Marshall. Please call me Gary. And <laughs> there's the Penny Marshall connection there because she directed Tom Hanks in two movies, and Penny Marshall was married at one point to Rob Reiner who's in this movie. There is kind of that whole. Yeah, I feel like there are more connections between the two of them. Also, actually, Nora Ephron was at one point married to Carl. Bernstein of like Woodward and Bernstein fame. Her book, which was ultimately made into a movie starring Meryl Streep uh, called Heartburn, which is like fictionalized, but it's like based on their relationship. Nora Ephron basically like leaked who Deep Throat was and nobody paid attention or cared. Wait, what? Really? Yeah, it's in the book. All right. I think one reason this movie really sort of clicked with me as far as like trying to, uh, not trying to, but as far as understanding like this whole like rom-com genre thing is because I feel like this movie starts in a very realistic place, like super heavy, very dramatic and stuff. And it gradually like gets to a fan, a fairy tale ending right but when but by the time we're there it feels so gradual and genuine you know like i think that's part of it is like there's all these little things in here that that you find in like 
more elevated movies, I guess you'd say. Like, I, I feel like it's almost shot like a different type of film, and maybe that's part of the reason why I connected with it. It doesn't, it's not shot like a comedy. It's not like people prat falling left and right, and there's not all this like comedy for the sake of laughter or stuff. Like, it comes from the situation and the, and the characterization and things like that. And I just feel like other rom coms I've watched maybe try a little too hard, whereas this one is more concerned with just telling its story. And I, and there's something to be said about the, the couple not meeting until the end and sort of like being getting until they're at a place where they're ready to meet and then like that's all it takes and once they're together they're together forever but I don't know there's just, there's just something to this one where I was willing to accept that sort of fantasy element at the end where it's like right out of you know like an old 40s film like they say in this movie whereas in other ones I feel like they just they maybe they jumped the gun too quickly or it's too crammed with disbelief or things of that nature but I don't know I think that's part of it was sort of like it felt more like a just a real like a normal movie that wasn't trying to be anything else and at the end it, it revealed itself to sort of be like this rom-com to me so also coming out today Fridays are for fun as you know uh, I joined with along with Jordan Paul and Clark Kara's co-host over on Whistle Thinking. She and I were on Brian's podcast, High School Summer Party, to talk about Tragedy Girls, a horror movie from a couple years ago. And I think that there is a sort of a tendency, and I think this also happens in music a lot, where if you see people are like, well, what kind of music do you like? It's like, I like anything but country and rap. It's like, well, you can't just say that. And I feel like, I mean, you can, but I don't think you can. And I feel like with both horror movies and rom-coms, I think that there is the sort of idealized version of like what, or not idealized version, but like it's the expected version of what that movie is. And I think that for both a horror movie and for a rom-com, it's not great because there's so many that are just, it's, a lot of it is just kind of brain mush for people who like those movies, right? I think that a movie like this maybe works better because it's not that, but I also think it's an example, like exactly an example of that. And I just don't want to like write off an entire genre of movies because a lot of them aren't great because a lot of them aren't, like they're not trying to be great. You know what I mean? They're just trying to be sweet and make you cry. Or horror movies are not trying to be great. They're just trying to be scary and make you jump or make you scream or whatever. And I think that there's a lot of similarities between the two genres because I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like horror movies. So it's like, well, you probably do. You just don't know which ones you like. Or like, I don't like rom-coms. Well, you probably do. You just haven't seen the ones that are actually, that are more your speed. Like, it could happen to you, the Nicolas Cage rom-com that I adore with all of my heart. Uh, like, that is just so wonderful. And I feel like it's similar, I think, to this. Like, that's kind of glossy and sort of not quite shot like this, but sort of, you know what I mean? Like, it's a different, it's like a more elevated take on it. And I just think that there is something nice about a movie like this that both falls into the conventions of the genre, but is also able to turn those conventions on their head to elaborate and expand upon you know, the, the types of themes and tropes and characters and relationships and whatever that you normally see in a movie like this. Yeah, I think I definitely shied away from this or was one of the people who, like you're talking about, was like, well, I just don't like this type of movie. But I, I think it's something like Kara was saying earlier, like this movie taught me how to watch these types of movies, you know, so like I do like these types of movies and they're like going forward like it's just it's they're they're just movies to me you know what i'm saying like i don't want to categorize them anymore like someone a shelf on 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 the rental store could categorize it for me but as i'm watching it i'm just gonna take it you know on its own level and everything and so i totally hear what you're saying between like the parallel between this and something like horror or something where it's like you can watch that just to sort of indulge in gratuitous violence or in these you, you know gratuitous like whatever like love and this and that but but that's what they're for you know there's a catharsis to it and this time i definitely felt 
felt it like with this movie <laughs> maybe because it's one of the, just known to be one of the better ones in general too like that might have something to do with it as well um that everyone feels like it's pretty well crafted and you know well liked uh so i don't know i, I did definitely think there's hope you know i'm excited because there's like a whole bunch of movies now that i want to like go watch that i never considered and that's the best it's like when i think the three of us on some extent to some extent are trying to do with brian it's like no brian you actually like horror movies you just don't know it yet i feel that way about everyone yes exactly but like it isn't that the best when you're able to find yeah. the movie or the actor or the director or whoever that like unlock something it's like oh wait no i do like this again to bring it back to music i'm not huge into country music but because there's the ken burns documentary that's out right now the his telling of the the history of country music then i have one friend who is like wildly into country music now because he's into that documentary and he's been putting together playlists and like i like all i'm listening to now is country music and like this is not a future that i saw for myself but like <laughs> there's like an entryway whether it is johnny cash and coulter wall in country music or if it's just you know nora efron and meg ryan in rom-coms like there's a way to like get in there and just be like oh wait no i was wrong this is great yeah and i think this movie works especially well that way i was just thinking about this mike while you were talking that because it does start so grounded in reality and so, like and such a dismal reality like that this little kid's mom died and now Tom Hanks has to be a single dad by himself and then kind of like escalates slowly into magical thinking whereas a lot of rom-coms kind of just like start out in a different universe and go from there this kind of starts here and kind of like leads you into that magical thinking of romance i wonder if part of what this movie brings because you know again i'm I'm a bit of a novice on the genre and it, it is i know it, it's half of the coin it's men and women and everything but this this feels a little more male-centric than some of the other romantic comedies that i've seen you know like or that i've watched lately is there anything to that oh yeah yeah because it shows such a different side of of men in this movie too than you usually see at the theater yeah and i actually one of the things that i find disappointing about this movie is that like the story of tom hanks being a single dad and like grappling with his grief and grappling with parenting like the fact that that's not the main story is frustrating to me like i don't care about the romance side of it like every time that he's on screen with his kid i find it like so compelling and so moving and like i want way more of that in this movie than there is even Carol, would you say that it's your favorite part of the movie? Is that, you know, in terms of the favorite and yeah. favorite moments, is it the Hank's kid stuff? Yeah, for sure. His kid's really good. I was shocked. Um, like, first of all, he just, he looks like a normal kid, you know? Like, he, he almost had like a Lip Nicky kind of vibe where it's like, that kid just looks, he doesn't look like a stage actor or anything. I don't know exactly how to explain myself when I'm, but he just looks like someone you'd see like at any grade school or like, it looks like one of my nephew's friends or something like that, but... Yeah, I thought he was great. Did either of you recognize his, I guess, girlfriend, Jessica? Yeah, that was Gabby Hoffman. Yeah. Is she from Mrs. Doubtfire? Also, no? yes. But she's also like, she's like an adult actress now, too. Like, she was in Girls. She's been in a bunch of indie movies. She's in a couple of movies with Michael Sarah. Like, she's still working. She's still like a thriving actress. And the reason I was able to, like, I saw her name. I was like, that can't be the same Gabby Hoffman. Like, that's that's crazy. And then I saw her eyebrows, Kara, eyebrows. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, no, that's Gabby Hoffman. Like, that is absolutely Gabby Hoffman. Yeah, I mean, and she has some of the most distinctive eyebrows in Hollywood, I think. Maybe that's why I like her so much. <laughs> it might be. 
But she always plays like real weirdos that I appreciate. And she's great in this. She is great in this. And I feel like like it's the kind of thing, again, like I feel not as strongly about these kids as I did about Lip Nikki over in Jerry Maguire. But I feel like what they do is both annoying as hell and also works. And I don't know how it threads that needle. But like her doing the abbreviations, it's like, ooh, this is so annoying. Like this is so precocious and annoying. But it kind of works too. Dude, that was so ahead of its fucking time. That's mm-hmm. all kids do now is those like LOLs and all that kind of stuff. Like I couldn't believe that was in a movie this old. That was great. And and yeah, they're kids, right? I feel like they act like kids. Like at one moment, they're like wiser than their years. And then the next moment, they're doing like the stupidest shit that they'd get in trouble for. And like thinking more about having like a stronger male perspective, I, I don't know if that's the way that you would want to phrase that, but I feel like Meg Ryan, and this also, I think, bolsters the argument that this is a ghost story and some sort of Meg Ryan is dead situation in that like she's like a real manic pixie dream girl in this, even though she is one of the main characters. Like she's got like tea bags hanging out of her pockets and she doesn't feel like Tom Hanks in this feels like a real person to me and she doesn't feel entirely grounded in reality. Yeah, her whole side of the story, I feel, is where they're trying to sort of lighten it up a little I guess because obviously the Hank stuff is very you know it could be too dark if you if you just wallow there for too long like just really quickly like we've mentioned it but like this movie the literally the first shot is him at his wife's funeral like it's like this is where we're starting yeah and you know I was a little worried that it was going to be too dark but then Meg Ryan's fiance Bill Pullman is like the ultimate mess right so like once we got to dinner at Christmas I was like oh okay I I think I get where how this movie's sort of going to split itself up uh, tonally and everything and it's like they're going to use like all the Meg Ryan stuff to sort of lighten the load of all the Tom Hanks stuff and when they sort of intersect it's going to be like this nice happy medium kind of thing going on that's why I figured they were really pumping up the more sort of fantasy elements and things but I also I agree I feel like they don't split the time up evenly enough per se like at some point I, I, it like becomes Meg Ryan's movie or maybe it is even Meg Ryan's movie where it sh- the focus should still feel like it's it's a Hanks film she feels like a live action Kathy cartoon to me in this <laughs> which was like very much a vibe of the early 90s and they actually talk a lot in this movie about that Newsweek article that came out in 1986 which we talked about on my season of Cinemakers about Amy Heckerling because she had cited it as one of the inspirations for Look Who's Talking but in this movie they're talking about how Newsweek had published this article that women over 40 were more likely to be killed by a terrorist than find a husband like this is a thing that actually happened and was actually like printed in a real magazine in fact the magazine that Nora Ephron started out as as a male girl in the 60s fun fact but the terrorist statistic like they talk about it so much in this movie it was like this whole big controversy and then it was debunked like over and over and over again and 20 years later Newsweek finally retracted the story but I like I'm too young to remember what it was like then but it seems like it was like based on the the media that I've seen from that time because it's also talked a lot about in Designing Women and like some other TV shows from that time and writing from that time like it must have been so stressful to be a woman in the early 90s especially like a single woman over the the age of 28 and you know it's definitely not at all stressful to be a woman now so no, that's definitely good not. i mean you guys haven't made yeah we've come a long way 
Although I do feel like the movie does a pretty good job of also showing how it's not only tough to be a woman over 28 in 1993, but also like how tough it is to be just a man or anybody. Yeah. Rob Reiner talking to Tom Hanks about like, well, this is how things are done. And oh, by the way, tiramisu, just like (laughs) the changing landscape of things. It's the kind of things where it's like, oh, yeah, like we could talk about like dating in 2019, which is going to be outdated in three years, probably, and let alone 26 years from now, like when this, you know what I mean? But like, it's always like, it's always tough to be everybody. Like just things are always tough and things are always miserable. And everyone has like, you know, whether you are a woman, like this is a particularly rough time. I mean, all, all time is a rough time to be a woman, but also just like just being back out there and having to adapt to the changing society and it's just man it is this movie i think does a good job of making sort of everybody the the human condition is like that of a fish out of water yeah but the human condition is why rom-coms exist and like why so many of them are so fluffy and ridiculous as to like counter the you know everyday horribleness of being a human in the world sorry no yeah no you're, you're <laughs> absolutely right mike what, what about you what is your favorite part of this movie is it something that we've already talked about or is it something that we have not talked about oh boy my favorite part you know what i i, I love that sequence when uh i'm not sure if it's my favorite i've only seen this once so late, but this is the moment early on where i was like i knew i liked this movie i didn't know i was gonna love it yet but i knew I, there was something different about this movie as a movie is when meg ryan's driving home alone from christmas dinner and she's listening to the radio and sort of first she starts like singing along what did she say she's just making up words like to some sort of jingle bells medley and she's just singing horses 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 that's horses, it, that's horses. It. horses after horses. she turns the music off like she just keeps singing horses horses, horses. like that that moment felt very real to me but i yeah. love because i was a little worried about how they were going to play it and i ended up loving the sequence where she's listening to uh the sleepless in seattle on the radio like she's listening to the radio call-in show and and the boy calls in and gets hanks on the line and and i was like is this sequence like ever gonna cut at any moment or anything and it just goes on and on and i love it yeah because it's just her face and i love it i love like the balls of just sticking with this moment and on her face like that and like her and waiting for her reactions and everything like there's a real confidence to this film like nora efron knows exactly it feels like she's a director that knows exactly what she wants you know and that there's there's room to improvise and room to have fun but as you know she's She's got like a, seems like a person with a plan and a mission and everything. And that's when I knew like there was something sort of different about this movie. And it's not the only time that like a sequence is going to do something unconventional like that, where like normally it would cut after a few minutes and go on to something else, but it's just going to keep going on or something or change in a way you weren't expecting. Like I, like I also feel like the montage later when Meg Ryan's following them around, like the way that ends is, you know, with her almost getting run over and stuff like that. Also, I love that moment and everything too, just in the way that it's not your everyday montage of it's maybe it's a little stalkerish, but you know, the, the point is I really just like the craft of this movie, to be honest with you. I, I, it does stuff that I definitely wasn't expecting. I, uh, it's just, it's blowing my mind a little bit, Mike. What did you think about when she goes to the diner and, like, it seems like the entire world is listening to this mysterious radio call-in show? Oh, I like that. You know, she goes in and the women, <laughs> actually what the, what the women are 
they're talking about the guy on the radio, I think, but they're also like making reference to the guys in their lives and like what losers they are. The one woman says something about how men just will just put stuff in the refrigerator without covering it, just like puts puts it in there and leaves it there until it walks out on its own. Uh, that just made me laugh so hard. I just felt very like like a real conversation between women, you know. You know where it kind of gets out of hand, Joey, is like like because I like that moment too, but like later on when uh, when he gets all the fan mail and like you know the mailman has to like park his truck and bring all the loads. I was like, okay, that that's it a bit much. It was a time like, <laughs> before email. You had to actually physically carry it. It was a time before email. Yeah, yeah. My mind slipped like that a few times where I was like, there's no cell phones there's no real like the computer there's one moment where she's like looking up stuff or trying to fax something on the computer i was like this is adorable <laughs> yeah she was using a, a precursor to lexus nexus i noticed like before lexus nexus even existed she was using something to like look up that she had access to because she was a reporter but like most people wouldn't have been able to do that at that time and then also later in the movie when uh, gabby hoffman books the little kid a ticket to new york on her own she's like on her mom's travel agent computer doing it but this is like technology that most people would not have access to at that time yeah i'm just i'm i'm looking forward to and also fearing the movie that's all about computers and love in the (laughs) 90s like it's going to be the height of everything but what was the movie was it my best friend's wedding there was a there was a julia roberts movie that i watched this summer where she had to send like very important emails and i was like oh boy like it's the same thing it's is that how computers were i don't know yeah yeah, they were slow and hard to use. What do you, What is my favorite moment? Oh, um, it's not my favorite moment, but there is in the little like gift shop outside of Meg Ryan's house or apartment or wherever she's living, and there's the heart-shaped candy box, and that's what's very clearly Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan's portrait on that. Like I thought that was very sweet, but that's like the most like one of the most liked trivia bits on IMDb. I was like, I thought that was obvious that that was those two. Like, do people watch this movie and not know that? You know what I'm talking about? Like that that candy box. I. Only- only know what you're talking about because in between when I watched it twice I read the trivia and I hadn't noticed it like I just hadn't even seen it the first time so then when I saw it the second time I was like oh well that's clearly that was just like a black silhouette cut out of the two of them oh because they like they transition to that scene by like showing the window and then they zoom in on that and then they like tilt up to see Meg Ryan coming out and getting the love note from Walter from President of the United States Bill Pullman. Back two in a row. Yeah, back from um, Gina Davis's husband in the last movie. And Rosie's back too. And Rosie's back as well, yeah. I actually, I read an interview that Rosie did uh, shortly after Nora Ephron died and she said that it's it's hard for her to watch it without missing uh, Nora Ephron a lot and it's, it's actually pretty painful but she said a year before the movie was made because she was in the league of their own with Madonna it had caught the attention of Nora Ephron's then 14 year old son Jacob and he kept saying mom you have to hire Rosie she's Madonna's friend and we can meet Madonna <laughs> So she actually credits Nora Ephron's son with getting this role in the movie because he really wanted to meet Madonna. I love it. I think my favorite part about this movie, and again, I, I don't like. I know that this is a Tom Hanks podcast, but again, for the second Meg Ryan Tom Hanks thing, thing in a row, like I am just smitten by Meg Ryan. She's wonderful. I mean, that's what's crazy to me is that like I love Tom Hanks so much in this movie. He's so good, and I love her so much in this movie. She's also great. Why don't I? It just like it doesn't. The two of them. Well, the fact that she's like stalking him the whole time is weird. I mean, this <laughs> is a movie about stalking, really. But again, like. 
then you know what I said to myself? I could finally tell myself it's a rom-com. Like, don't think of it as stalking like you know it, you know? Like, it's fantasy stalking. It, we don't even use the S word. <laughs> well, yeah, but again, this being a, like, a self-aware romantic comedy, and, like, especially Rosie saying that line about how Meg Ryan wants love to be like she's in a movie and Jordan says this all the time on Wistful Thinking like this is why we're all so fucked up is because not this movie in particular this I think the fact that she's actively stalking a person and that's romantic in this movie is kind of tongue-in-cheek but there are so many other rom-coms where the behavior is clearly crosses like so many lines and like are huge red flags for any relationship and it's just like taken as part of the romance. That's always tough. I feel like we we come across that a little bit when we watch like older films that haven't aged well. But also there's like movies that I feel like don't even know they're doing that kind of thing yeah. either, you know, and kind of get away with it at times. And at least like I think it's the important thing is that like we as viewers can actually can realize what's going on, you know, at least like if we can figure it out, then we're good on our end. I do want to call out specifically of Meg Ryan's many wonderful things in this movie, though you know, creepy possible stalking aside, when she sidles into Rosie's office and, like, sneaks in there and then just, like, casually, like, sideways sits down on the chair, I love that whole sequence. Oh, there's also that time when she goes to see her brother and she's just talking and asking him questions but not giving him really an opportunity to answer. And then at one point she just, like, plonks down on on the piano and it makes a noise. Her brother, played by David Hyde Pierce, right? It is David Hyde Pierce, yeah. I got him confused with the guy from the Titanic who is married to Rita Wilson, Tom Hanks' real-life wife who plays Playing his sister. His in sister. That's so weird. This is like the third or fourth movie she's been into. I was surprised she wasn't trying to sell us a Coca-Cola, Joey. Oh, man. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know she was in this one. Like, I, I know that she's going to be back in five movies yeah, for that, that thing, thing you do, do. right? Yeah. yeah, so... She may even pop up before then. Who knows? Maybe. I don't know. We, we will certainly find out. I just love Meg Ryan. I just love her... Ever, like, just the physicality of it all. You know, she's just, like... She's able to convey being sweet, but also crafty and smart and innocent and, like... I mean, she's the perfect rom-com star. Like, there's a reason why she was in so many of these movies, and it's because she's perfect. Yeah, no arguments here. Is there anything else? Like her just sitting in the closet listening to the radio, like just trapped in there? Like, Oh, I did have one other favorite moment that I at first was mad about and then really enjoyed, which is the food allergy scene from early in the movie when they like go to Meg Ryan's family's house and Bill Pullman is meeting her family for the first time, question mark, and also they're announcing they're engaged. That seems like a high stakes situation. But, yes, um, oh, absolutely. Oh yeah, he's memorizing all the, the names and what they do, yeah. Yeah, but like going into that, one of them, he mentions somebody's wife and she's like, that's the one with red hair. She's the most competitive woman in the world and then he starts having an allergic reaction to something and then that woman starts talking about how her husband is allergic to bees and how he's just so allergic to bees and kind of doing this kind of one-upmanship where they're talking about allergies and stuff which is played as a joke but also I've been in that situation so many times where like that actually even though it, it is like a source of the comedy in the scene it felt very real to me a person with food allergies because it's like funny and awkward and 
uncomfortable and people say weird things to you. And I've been like in very similar situations to that. I got so thrown off guard of the Bill Pullman character. And I, and I wondered, you know, I, I mean, I clearly think it was an intentional thing. Like, you know, he's very handsome. He's very dashing. And you see him instantly and he's like memorizing all these facts about her family and everything. You're like, all right, this guy's fucking got it together. Like, you know, like he's, he's a real total catch. Package. Yeah, he's a real catch. And then the very next scene or two, like it all falls apart. It's like, he's a mess. Like he can't hold it together. He's got no idea what to do. But but he ends up being like the sweetest guy in the world at the end when they break off the engagement. He takes the breakup like a champ. He's just like, yes, be, go be with a man who you probably, who you don't know, but you love. I'm okay with that. I just, I, I love the whole, I mean, I was just so thrown by him at first. So I love the portrayal of Bill Pullman's character in this movie. I still think he's a real catch regardless. Yeah, I mean, he's he seems he's a he's a good looking dude. He's probably got a good job. He's got a, a beautiful ring. He's got a, a family, like a mother who's like who loves him enough to give him the ring. Like, you know. Yeah, but the movie is trying to say like, and I mean, not just with the food allergy stuff. I think that's like shorthand to be like, oh, like he's not as uh, he's not what you thought he was. Or like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's something behind that facade that uh, it's kind of crack. I don't know. I, I was just you know, he's not exactly what she thought he was. Is the kind of thing going on. No, I feel like she knows exactly who he is. And that's what she thinks she loves about him. Oh, okay. Yeah. These are all just aspects of his his life and his personality. And it's like, she is delusional, basically. <laughs> well, because like, her mother says something when she's like trying on her gra- great-grandmother's wedding gown or whatever that like she felt magic when she saw her husband for the first time and it, like it seems like it I don't know if maybe Meg Ryan's character had been thinking about this previously or maybe it was just you know swirling in the back of her head but like in the world of this movie it seems like that plants the seed that then grows into this full-blown obsession with a man she doesn't know you know what I mean that like she's like magic I've never once considered this before <laughs> hmm, what's that what's that like? That's not what this is, you know? And so, you know, it's all like very normal stuff. I think that people go through before making a lifelong commitment, but like, there's nothing wrong with that guy. He seems great. Cause it's like, he says at the end something, he's like, I don't want you to settle. Right. Like, he's yeah. like don't just settle for me. If it's not what you like figured out, it's not what you want, you know? So yeah. And it's something that's interesting. Yeah, so she loves him for all of his flaws and foibles and all that kind of stuff in the beginning. And everything. Yeah, which is like good. You're supposed to. <laughs> I would hope that you would if you're going to like be married to somebody forever, you know what I mean? But like those are somehow drawbacks. Like she when she starts like entering this like realm of magical thinking for some reason like, you know, all of these things that had previously been strengths are now weaknesses or at least she's seeing them that way. Now, Kara, is there something about this movie that doesn't work for you? Or is there something that you would change or you would remove? I mean, the whole thing? I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is about this that I don't like and that isn't working. Because it's like, I love Nora Ephron. I love the people in this movie. I get what they're trying to do. And it just doesn't work for me. And I don't quite sure know why. Also... Like, I have a nostalgic attachment to When Harry Met Sally, which is a movie that certainly has its problems, but also it's perfect. And so, like, to come back to this after seeing the other one so many times and the fact that Meg Ryan is in both of them, maybe it was just a letdown. And the first time I watched it, I was in a very bad mood. 
which was why I watched it again. And I'm glad that I did because I enjoyed it a lot more the second time. But I don't know. Sort of makes me wonder, you know, when when watching it a second time and liking it more, but not necessarily still clicking in or not really fully understanding it. And I wonder if this is the kind of movie that if you could watch it another time, another two times or three times or five times or whatever, if you're going to get to that point where you're like, oh, I love this movie unabashedly. Sure. I mean, I, I honestly think if you watch enough a movie enough times, like, you're going to fall in love with it, whether you like it or not. Yeah. You'll Stockholm yourself, right? You'll just, like, break your your spirit down and be like, oh, no, I love this movie. Yeah. You'll find things to love about it. And there are things that I love about this. But I do wonder, in that regard, you know, this is a, a podcast about Tom Hanks. And, you know, not that we're not necessarily Tom Hanks experts. We just, you know, do a lot of podcasts and whatever. But I wonder, you know, somebody stumbles across this episode because they're like, oh, I love, like, Sleepless in Seattle's my favorite movie. And then they hear all three of us are like, yeah, I've never seen it before. This is the first time. Here's my thoughts on it. It's just like, are we doing it the right way? You know, I feel like it's kind of a weird thing that we do for the podcast where it's just like, unlike your show, Kara, where you in theory, the, the the at least the thesis statement of your show is like a movie that you saw probably a bunch growing up that you liked that you're gonna rewatch. Like at least you sort of have a film, like you know what it is. Here, I feel like it's just a different thing. Like, well, yeah, I mean, nostalgia is a hell of a drug. You know what I mean? Like, so when you have some sort of emotional attachment to something, it's gonna change how you feel about that thing. You're going to feel differently at different points in your life because you're going through different things or you've had different experiences. And so revisiting something now has like a certain resonance. But so this is why it's kind of silly to me that people think that you can objectively evaluate a movie or anything really, because like these things are so subjective, like the mood that you're in affects how you feel about the movie. Like there's all of these little things you go see it in the movie theater and like the person in front of you is texting like that yep. can mm-hmm. totally throw off your experience of a movie i was thinking as you were talking about that about like just like the the mindset the mentality of you know the the circumstances in which you see a movie like not to plug high school summer party again but when you were just on talking about buffy and you were talking about how you had seen buffy the show in its entirety in three different wildly different times in your life and so different everything yeah. like anything you do or watch or like you know, watch or read or consume, like, it's just going to hit you differently. I feel like in terms of books, like, I read so many of, like, like the greatest books of all time in high school and college because, like, I was, they were assigned to me. And I was, like, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. I was just, like, a dumb kid. Like, why am I reading, like, Shakespeare? Or, like, I know that why we do it, but, like, what are we, like, we're, how, we're not supposed to, like, what do we get from that? Like, we're just dumb kids with no experience. Yeah. I, I wonder if that speaks to why I might have like this because I don't really have like anything like I had really low expectations going in originally no matter what and like I I feel like it aged pretty well all things considered and I I just have to imagine that when it came out in in its time it it was probably like explosive like so of its time and Mm -hmm. so I I think that's part of it I think just movies are made for when they're made like they just are from a certain time and and this one though like I don't know there's just some lasting there's some everlasting like qualities to it I feel that just it's not like super crass or mean or anything it never gets too dark and it it treads like so well on real moments like when he's talking to his son about sex just so candidly and and all that kind of stuff like all that stuff like really matters it means that it's all those little touches that sort of make it stand apart and so like for me I think that's that's why it worked for me because I didn't really have anything to compare it to necessarily to say like oh here's what I like I hope it's like that or I hope it's as good as that or this or whatever i just kind of didn't like anything before before this one and now it's what i'm gonna use to so it's my litmus test one now 
Well, if those are things that you enjoyed about this movie, I highly recommend getting into Nora Ephron's other work because that's exactly what her writing is like. It's it's always so smart and timely, but timeless. And like, you know, cheeky, but never too mean. I guess, like, I don't love all of her movies. I love When Harry Met Sally and Juliet and Julia, and that's kind of it. But I have read like almost all of her books and her essays and stuff and they're all just so wonderful so just want to make another plug for Nora Ephron if that's what you liked about this movie well Mike what did you not like about this movie what 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 would you change what was your least favorite part of this okay I actually feel like this wraps up too quickly like it, it sort of feels like it makes a sharp left turn when when he goes to New York when the kid just like books the flight and takes off on its own I don't know what I want what else I want there I think maybe I want more lost in New York or something. Yeah, it was in the early 90s. New York was still very scary for a tiny child. Yeah, and all the cab drivers are like, where to, little guy? Why are you going to spit off the top of the Empire State Building? Good for you. But I don't know. I feel like it sort of just sprints to the end at some point. Like, it just sounds like a a gunshot went off and we have to finish this movie now. I don't know whether or not that's what actually what's going on, but that's just how it feels to me. It just kind of feels like at a certain moment, this movie is just racing to to the finish line. And I just wish it didn't. I wish it kind of skipped there or galloped or something like that but um you know everyone's in this big panic because the the boy like went to new york on his own and rightfully everyone should be in a panic about that i'm not saying they shouldn't i just wish there was something else going on maybe before that or you know when he gets to new york and i don't know what to do but it's just like a feeling you know i'll just say it one more time i just feel like it it just it, it speedily wraps itself up a little too quickly i wish it just sort of like floated there a little more like, do you wish that it had more time with them together, or you want the, the build-up to them getting together is longer? I think I need a little of both. Like, we only, we get her with Bill Pullman having that nice dinner, and that's great, but Hanks doesn't really, we have one shot of him, like, on the airplane, and then racing to get, like, I don't know what, maybe he needed to go with more people, and yeah, and I definitely wanted, you know, I don't need to follow them down in the elevator, but... I would have liked like an extra couple minutes of them just like sort of staring into each other's eyes. Uh, no, but that would ruin it. No, I mean, they don't have to say anything, but I just want them to be standing there sort of dumbstruck an extra minute or two. Again, like there's no way I could ever write anything like Nora Ephron can or any. So I don't want to like, I don't even know what to do different, but I just, it's a, you know, it's just a feeling I had where I was like, I don't want this to wrap up as fast as it is. I feel like there's a, a slower way to do this. But. I, I like that it ends so abruptly. Like, I definitely do want some Lost in New York action with that kid because that kid is like amazing. And I feel like he should be in this movie a little bit more. Wait, hold on real quick. What if, Mike, the kid lost in New York, we give Kara exactly what she wants, and this kid like wanders off, goes down in the subways, finds Pardu, a holy oh. man down there. Right? What if that yeah. happens? Oh, dude. And instead of the top of the Empire State Building, they go to the top of the World Trade Center where Pardu wanted to go. Also, I want to point out that my entire life, not my, this is, this is a gross exaggeration. I was going to say my entire life, I always heard that this movie ended on the top of the Empire State Building. And in my head, I was like, everybody's got to be wrong. Why would it be called Sleepless in Seattle and it's not in the Space Needle? Like, why, how, like, this shit makes no sense. Like, it's romantic, but it's just like, they're in another city with another tall, famous, pointy building. Like, why would you not do that? The whole geography of this had me real confused. Well, maybe that's what I don't, maybe if they stayed in Seattle at the end, maybe yeah. going to New York was the problem for me. 
I didn't even know she was from Baltimore. I thought she was from Chicago. And I was like, oh, this makes sense because he's originally from Chicago. He'll just go back to Chicago. No, like she's from Baltimore. They wind up in New York. But at the same time, now that I'm thinking about it, this is actually hilarious and kind of adds another layer of comedy to this that I hadn't previously thought about. Like just the logistics of it is absolute nonsense. Like the reason that it is New York and the reason that it is the Empire State Building is because that is what is in An Affair to Remember. They're watching it and Rosie just gives her that as a time and place to meet the guy. Quick question speaking about geography. What did you guys think of having or what did you think of having the school classroom map pull down on the wall that they have installed in their home? You know, that is that is weird that it's installed in the house, but I loved how throughout the entire movie we were getting a geography lesson. Like, what city, oh, like, yeah. what state is that in? And the kid, like, wouldn't know, and Hanks would be like, ha-ha, and, like, point to it on the map. Yeah, and we actually, like, see the map and the animations and the traveling and stuff. I, I guess I hadn't thought about the geography as a part of the movie, really, but it is. Which made me just think of a really wonderful rom-com that I'm going to recommend. One of the many wonderful rom-coms starring Drew Barrymore, who is also a perfect rom-com actress. Oh, well, music and lyrics is great. That one is one of my very favorites, but that's not what I was thinking about. Going the Distance, it's like her and the guy from the Apple commercials, the guy, the Mac guy. Justin Long. They have this like long distance relationship and it's I think so Christina good. Applegate's in it as her sister-in-law or sister yes. or something. Okay. Yeah, highly recommend. I've seen this movie as well. I Apparently I've logged it on Letterboxd. I don't know why I've seen this or when I saw it. I've seen it like an embarrassing number of times. Music and lyrics also. That oh. one's with Hugh Grant and he plays like a former pop star. Like he was in like a Depeche Mode type band. I've almost certainly seen it because Charlie Day is in it and also but there's just like a stacked cast of like you said Christina Applegate but also Charlie Day and Jason Sudeikis and Ron Livingston. Natalie Morales is wonderful. Jim Gaffigan, June Diane Raphael, Rob Riggle, Sarah Burns, Mike Birbiglia. Like this is certainly Kristen Shaw's in here somewhere. Yeah, like it's definitely a movie that I would have seen i think probably just because it was charlie and stuff but yeah wow okay but you recommend it carrie you, you love that one highly yeah i'm gonna say i think i mentioned it earlier my least favorite part of sleepless in seattle is just the precociousness of the kids doesn't work for me really it just doesn't I no it doesn't love it i like parts of it i don't like i don't there's things i like and there's things i don't like i think the kid jonah's i like his steadfastness to annie i just yeah. think that there's certain bits that are just it just doesn't feel re- like just him talking to hanks like so you're gonna have sex with this woman, right? Or like, you know, just like stuff like that. Just like I love that stuff. I I, I feel like because I love how Hanks as a dad doesn't like shy away from any of that. He's like, this is my son. He's gonna be a man one day. Like I'm just gonna give it to him straight, kind of talk. And, yeah, and it's st- the, the movie starts that way. He's just like very matter of factly explaining like your mom got sick and she died, and like this is just the way that things are, you know. So like it establishes it from the very beginning of the movie that they have a very like frank and honest relationship with each other but, but i can see some of that going um like getting to you a little bit like where it got to me sort of was i guess when he and maybe because he started acting like such a child of like the age he was supposed to be but like when hanks is dating that one woman that he doesn't like you know because he wants him to go to see annie and stuff and he's like mocking her he'd be like thank you very much and like all <laughs> that kind of shit and it's just like oh you a little yeah, but, like, that's how kids process this kind of stuff, you know? Like, they don't have 
I mean, most adults don't have the tools to deal with this situation, you know? So I, I found, like, the characterization of those kids and the acting of those kids, like, so spot on. I also just, like, really enjoy children of that age. Like, I do not like kids, but, like, third graders are hilarious. And they're they're just, like, you know, like, the world hasn't quite beaten them down yet, but they're just a little too smart for their own good. Can we talk about very briefly why Meg Ryan hires a detective to take pictures of Tom Hanks in Seattle? while he's on a date oh it's because she's stalking him yeah that seems uh crazy joey what if she hired cage from the beginning of honeymoon in vegas because that was his job remember as like a pi to do that kind of thing part of me just thought i was like oh i really feel like that almost like was supposed to be cut or there was a something more there that that got edited out and i actually kind of feel like once or twice in the beginning of this movie that like a lot of stuff might have gotten sort of cut out of the beginning of this movie mm-hmm. uh, but I'm fine with all that but that that to me felt like sort of a residual sort of leftover thing that like not that it wasn't supposed to be there but like there's used to be a lot more going on with that is how it felt well it gives her a photograph of what he looks like because you couldn't just look up what people looked like back then and then the only like thing that it really sets up is the triangle hair both the woman that he's dating and Rita Wilson's character are have like very similarly shaped curly bobs that are like from behind just look like a triangle so in the photos that the private detective takes it's like the back of the woman that he's dating her head and then when she sees them in the street she sees Rita Wilson from behind and thinks it's the same person so when she very warmly greets the, the child and Tom Hanks she's like oh wow look they're in a relationship i'm too late i understand the coincidence of that and why that works narratively but i also feel like if you get a halfway decent detective they're going to get pictures of her too like it's not gonna be like oh i can't see her from this angle like that's i'm good you guys we're talking about film photography okay you had to have actual film in the camera you had to get it developed So here are some quick bits of trivia. Originally, Annie, the role of Meg Ryan, was offered to Julia Roberts, Julia Roberts herself, who turned it down. Kim Basinger was also offered the role, but thought the premise was, quote, ridiculous. Michelle Pfeiffer, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and Jodie Foster all declined. Meg Ryan then landed the role. Also considered Nicole Kidman, Demi Moore, and Natasha Richardson. She has real Kidman energy in this. I could totally see Nicole Kidman in this. It feels like a lot of these names, Nicole Kidman included, and Michelle Pfeiffer, I think, and Jennifer Jason Lee, sort of are popping up in, like, kind of how Cage and Cruz are not, like, everything, like, every role that went to Cruz, that Cage was considered for or whatever. It feels like all of these women are basically considered for all of these movies around this time, both, like, the Cruz movies and the Hanks movies that we're covering. Like, these are just like, hey, this is who was hot at the time, and, like, we're going to get him in our movies. Um, But again, I just think that, you know, Meg Ryan is just so wonderful here that I'm glad it was her. Do either of you want to play the game in which you win a walk-on role into Sleepless in Seattle? Where would you put yourself? Would you be atop the Empire State Building looking out? Carol, would you be a woman standing there and have Jonah say, are you Annie? And you say, no, no, dear. Um, where where would you put yourself in this movie? Or do you want do you not want to be in this movie? No, I would be probably in the diner. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The only role I think I could play in this is that 90-year-old elevator uh, character guy. <laughs> That would be, <laughs> I'm the only, it's the only age-appropriate role Age for up just a little bit, not too much. Yeah, you're almost there, <laughs> almost there. You know, I found it so striking how young they were in this movie. 
I don't know like how old the characters themselves are supposed to be, but Hanks was 35 when he he made this, uh-huh. or at least when it came out. And the woman that he's dating, the actress, was 26. But I think her hair makes her look really old. And the clothes, like the early 90s, was still like very shoulder patty, but like a little looser than the late 80s. So like a lot of drapes, draping, which I think. You know, no one's really showing off the figure. It can kind of make you look a little more yeah, matronly. He's wearing very billowy shirts, too. Like, when he is just, like, making that phone call to that woman, he's, like, wearing, like, shirts that, like, you can't see where his arm begins or ends. It's just, like, it's basically like a puffy shirt. I looked up Clarice, who plays, because, again, just, I, I can't think of the name Clarice and not think of Starling, but... The, the babysitter, Clarice, this is the only thing she's ever done. Like, I, she's not, I, I, she's got to just be, like, the daughter or the friend of someone. Now, can we imagine, for a minute, Sleepless in Seattle, starring Tom Cruise in the Tom Hanks role as a dad. We saw him in Jerry Maguire sort of as a father figure. What would this movie be like with Tom Cruise in the role, or if not the Tom Hanks part, is there another role? And I don't know that there is another, I mean, there's the Rob Reiner role, there's the brother-in-law role. If Tom Cruise doesn't work in this role, where could he be in this movie? Could he play Bill Pullman? Mm. I actually think he would work in this, to be quite honest. I, I think... Joey, from what we've seen, even though we haven't, he hasn't shown quite the vulnerability to the level that Hanks gets to in this movie. Uh, and by the way, I'm just blown away by what Hanks is able to do in this movie. Like, uh, I fucking feel for the guy so much. Like the moment when when the actual ghost of his wife visits him in this movie, and I just fucking lost it so hard. That was one of the scenes where it was just like over for me. But I could totally, I think I could see Tom, I think this would be a good vehicle for Tom Cruise, believe it or not. Like, I think, but I think he's got it. I think there's something about this material that he could, that he would fit. I would love to see him as a single father. I think he would have that sort of air to him that he's sort of lost without, you know, without his wife in his life. Now, would his wife be dead or did he just steal the children from his wife? Too close to life. That I'm not sure. But I, I'm going to have to say this time, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure he could do this one. Carol, what about you? Do you think that it could be Tom Cruise in the role or no? I think he could do it. I would have a hard time liking it. And just, I mean, Hanks, so I, I looked uh, up also the ages of his kids and his eldest son, Colin Hanks, who we now know mm-hmm. as an actor as well, was about 14 when this came out. So okay. like he, by then, when I was watching him with that kid in that movie, it, I, it looked like he was having a conversation with his like actual son like it felt so real to me in a way that like I don't think that Tom Cruise is capable of like because it's he always is like a little bit plastic to me and I was actually really kind of blown away with like how genuine Hanks felt in this I think I would instead cast him as the brother-in-law because I could see them doing like an improv shtick like they do with you know, talking about that war movie whose name I can't remember. Dirty Dozen. There you go. Like, I could see the two of them kind of, like, bouncing off of each other. Maybe the Rob Reiner role, but I I think Rob Reiner is perfect. I think, actually, you know, I I agree that Rob Reiner is perfect, and I I don't want to. Like, I think you could put him in that kind of role, but I think it would be a different, I think an, an equally funny, but a different tone. Like, you have this, like, Again, comparing Cruise to Hanks and whatever, but like you have this like young, sexy stud in Tom Cruise and like trying to explain like not just like the dating element, but like more of like the sex element. And like you're, you're never going to believe like what they're into now. Like, you know, you know what I mean? It's just like the kind of like almost like in The Wolf of Wall Street where they're talking about like what prostitutes do to the, you know what I mean? Like they're having that conversation. Like, is that also with Rob Reiner? Mm-hmm. So we- weird coincidence there. But like 
it just I feel like it would be like a, the same kind of like let me tell you the, the ins and outs and whatever but it wouldn't be the like the dating element like oh you don't pay for this she doesn't pay for that whatever it's more of the like disgusting sort of dirty not sure if it fits in this movie but I could definitely see in that kind of role that kind of advice that he could give I could see that but I love Rob Reiner's I role do too. Uh, his um his line about the butts cute butts which sounded probably improvised also when he's talking the, about how all women want these days are like good pecs and cute butts and it made me laugh. And I can't, I, I mean, obviously Tom Cruise wouldn't say that because I'm sure his butt is very cute. Can't confirm though. Never really paid attention. The answer to this is I think very obviously a yes, but does Tom Hanks in this movie do anything that sets him on the road to becoming America's dad? The very first thing I wrote down was America's dad! Exclamation point. So Yes. This might be where that started, maybe? Like, could this possibly be, like, part of the genesis of why he's called America's Dad is because he's, like, one of the ultimate dads ever in this Possibly. movie? Yeah, Possibly. I think so. Uh, this movie was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Original Screenplay and Best Original Song. Did not win either of those. Whoa, what song? Oh, my God, the epic Celine Dion cover of, what was it, well, something? It, it was nominated for A Wink and a Smile. Hmm. Music by Mark Shaman, lyrics by Ramsey McLean. You mean it wasn't the Celine Dion song? Also this year, uh, also nominated for Best Academy Award for Original Screenplay Philadelphia, they both lost to The Piano, written by Jane Campion. Uh, Golden Globes nominated for Best Motion Picture Comedy or Musical, Best Performance in a Music, or Motion Picture Comedy or Musical uh, by for Meg Ryan and for Tom Hanks. So all three, the film, and each of them got a nomination. None of them won either, though, unfortunately. So... But talking about some awards they could win, let's nominate this for some Woodies, the Tom Hanks Awards. We already have Meg Ryan nominated for Best Non-Hanks Actor Female for her oeuvre, her three-film arc, her five different characters that she plays. I'm hesitant to ask this because I don't think it belongs there, but Best Film, question mark? Knowing what's coming. I know you keep saying that every episode, knowing what's coming. I know some of the stuff that's coming, and I still, I really want to say yes, but... Like, I'm just thinking, I'm just trying to think rationally about if we have 10 movies, right? Probably, and I'm, I don't want to, like, get ahead of ourselves, but probably catch me if you can. Saving Private Ryan, The Green Mile, Forrest Gump, well, Philadelphia. I'm not I don't, so I don't sure like about, I know that, I'm I know not I don't so like, sure I don't about like that anymore. But yes, but the five of those, at least two Toy Stories, maybe? A League of Their Own is better? Joe vs. the Volcano? I mean, you make a compelling argument. It's on the cusp. I'll put it in. It's on Because I like it more than the Money Pit, which we have on here. Okay, yeah. Maybe just swap it off with the Money Pit tonight. Nah, I'll just leave just... it there. We'll, 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 we'll call it down in uh, late December 2020. Because, Joey, I mean, I, th- I feel like my catchphrase for Tom Tom Club is nobody's more surprised than me. Like, I've said it so many times on, like, recent episodes where I was like, no one's more surprised than I am that I actually like this movie or whatever. Like, that I don't like this or whatever. And it happened again tonight. It's weird. Amazing. It's a Amazing. weird feeling. So weird. Do we want to nominate uh, Sam Baldwin as one of the best Hanks roles? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because this is, like I said, I feel like this is proto-dad. Like, this is the dad that they talk about when he's becoming America's dad. I want to give this movie credit for best ensemble. I feel like we have to because everybody in this movie plays their part exceptionally well. Best fight? He doesn't really get, he doesn't get into a fight, right? No, no fights. Best dance scene, best party scene, best outfit, wardrobe, all no, does not die. Best line or best freakout? Is there something that he says that we want to nominate for best line or best freakout? 
Oh, he actually has a lot of really good lines in this. I didn't write any of them down. He has this line. I actually have heard this in a couple other movies. I mean, I don't think it's because of this movie or whatever. I mean, maybe. But, like, it's a line that I've... That, that's just come up a lot. And so, like, when he's talking... When, when, when he's asked about his wife that passed away, like, what was it about your wife that you couldn't live without her, that you loved so much, this and that? And I feel... Yeah, at one point, he says uh, she felt like home. Like, I knew I was home or something like that. And, like, that has come up like a lot lately in stuff that I've watched and so like I perked up and paid attention I was like holy shit is this sort of like where that came from that line that like loving you is like being home or like feeling like I'm at home or something like that or whatever I'm not saying we need to nominate I'm just saying like as far as like dialogue and lines in this movie that jumped right out at me I thought you were going to say when you started that description the, the what I thought was a very sweet line that he says is when he's on the phone with the call-in show and she says, tell me about your wife. And he says, well, how long is your show? Like, basically, where do you, like, how long do you want me to talk for? Cause I can can talk I just forever. read the whole passage? Absolutely. So, so this is actually, this. It's, it's such a short clip, but it's, I think there are, like, so many good lines right in here, which is the psychologist says, people who truly loved once are far more likely to love again. Sam, do you think that there's someone out there who you could love as much as your wife? And then he says, well, that's hard to imagine. And she asks him, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I'm going to get out of bed every morning, breathe in and out all day long. Then after a while, I won't have to remind myself to get out of bed every morning and breathe in and out. And then after a while, I won't have to think about how I had it great and perfect for a while. And then she asks to tell her what was so special about his wife and he says well how long is your program it's a million tiny things that when you add them all up they meant we were supposed to be together which side note i feel like we see that illustrated like over the course of the movie like these like parallels between these two characters that like taken alone don't really mean anything but they you know cumulatively by the end of the movie you actually are rooting for the two of them and side note and then he says i knew it the very first time i touched her it was like coming home only to no home I had ever known I was just taking her hand to help her out of a car and I knew it was like magic so I think not necessarily a line but a short excerpt maybe I like all of that I think that it's all beautifully delivered I guess we'll just say uh, radio monologue sure yeah, yeah that works I do like that there is the thing that, again, it's another trivia IMDb. I feel like it's just the kind of thing that you would pick up maybe, but early in the movie as Meg Ryan, I think it's maybe the second time that she's listening on the radio and she's carving an apple and she's mm-hmm. doing the entire peel with the one slice through. And then when Tom Hanks is explaining or describing his wife to his son or he's saying, you know, what, what did you love about her or whatever? Like, that's the thing he says, like, she can do that. And I feel like that's the kind of thing it's the, you know, she's the replacement or whatever. Like, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, this is not necessarily a good movie, but have you seen the movie Return to Me starring David Duchovny and Minnie Driver? No, I have not. The movie is about David Duchovny is a widower. His wife dies. Oh, also, by the way, as a journalism nerd, I loved Meg Ryan's Why, if you're a widower, do you get widowed? Why are you not widowered? Which I love. But Return of Me is about David Duchovny's wife dies and like in a car accident, and her heart is transplanted into Minnie Driver's body. And and then, you know, she he is attracted to her. Uh, and it's basically... 
It's... What? Why? <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. I have all the questions already. Oh my god. And then they fall, a uh, spoiler, but of course, they. Uh, there's no way that it doesn't, it doesn't end with that, but they fall in love because, like, her heart returned to him. Oh my god, thank god that she wasn't, like, a murderer and that the heart transplant didn't <sighs> mm. turn Minnie Driver into a crazed lunatic. But that's the kind of thing where it's like, it's not like, and I don't remember the actress's name who plays his wife, because she's, she's in a couple scenes of this movie, but it's not like her spirit went into Meg, Meg Ryan. Ryan. It's no, not like no. she became Annie. It's the same, it's the same, you know, they both existed at the same time, but it does kind of feel like, in a way, she's kind of the reincarnation or similar enough, right? Where it's just like, oh, that they're... But again, that's also kind of worrying, like, do you want to replace your love with the same person? Like, it feels like then there would be this kind of ideal that you don't, you can't live up to. Is that like replacing the turtle when it dies before your kid finds <laughs> out? <laughs> no, but he definitely has, like, a type. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, that the, he a wants, woman who can and carve it... an entire apple with a single cut. All I was thinking when I was watching that the first time was, like, how many takes oh, God. did this take? Because she doesn't even do the whole apple. Like, it falls apart at some point. All right, so best line we have that. Best soundtrack theme score? No? There's so many songs in this movie apparently the person that they had originally hired to do the music in this like they gave him a list of 20 something songs that they really wanted in the movie and he quit he was like we can't do this and there are like so many kind of like crooner style songs and like old hollywood romantic comedy songs in this that i found it kind of obnoxious but i think it was just kind of like trying to conjure those like feelings of like those old hollywood kind of love stories but i didn't really appreciate it best or worst hank's love story i'm gonna say no because like it's not a love story it's a, it's an obsessive stalker story most badass role not for hanks and then best non-hanks actor male or female we already have meg ryan is there anybody else we want to nominate i'm gonna say no just because i think this is like a, a two-handed show right like this i is think just... the little kid i think he's so good in this i like the kid too but i think we already have lipnicki on the list don't we i like other him show other more. other podcasts oh other podcasts oh okay then never mind i'm sorry well World's you need a lipnicki of your own right, for i'll this say one. ross malinger as Jonah. Yeah, he didn't wind up doing much. He was in like a few other big movies as a little kid and did a voice on a cartoon that I loved called Recess, which oh, was on like ABC kind of Saturday morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Spinelli is like probably a much bigger influence on my life than I realized. But yeah, he was just like one of the other characters on that show. And then I don't, I couldn't really find what he was up to now. We have six nominations here. Best Film, Best Role, Best Ensemble, Best Line, and then Best Non-Hanks Actor, Male and Female, for The Sun and for Meg Ryan. Cool. Nice. Any other final thoughts about Sleepless in Seattle before we uh, come back in two weeks for Philadelphia, a movie that, uh, oh boy, uh, yeah, that's we're going to talk about it. My final thought about Sleepless in Seattle is, you know, now that I think about it, I understand why they didn't, and I like this ending very much, but I totally think it could have ended at the Space Needle and been very, very romantic and maybe carved out even more of its own niche in the genre by not sort of repeating what was done in a very famous movie. It still works extremely well for me, but uh, I could see it working that way too. And maybe that's the way I would fix it when I was complaining earlier on. Like So you're saying that she picks up the backpack, she looks at the teddy bear, she turns around and she sees them, or we we see from their back, they see her, and then it just, it just ends? No, well, like, so, no, like, uh, she never comes back from, like, Seattle. Like, that's what I'm thinking is, like, she stays there and, like, 
starts like talking to them and they meet at the Space Needle or some 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 kind of chain of events where like she goes back to Seattle and they oh, do it all there. It's okay. a little I don't know, I feel like it's a little cleaner. It keeps it all in Seattle. But that's it. You know, ultimately it doesn't really make a difference. I, I love this movie. I was not expecting to. No one's more surprised than I am. Well, for what it's worth, I think I read that they shot the Empire State Building stuff in Seattle. So they shot all of that was all shot out there. So Kara, any other final thoughts about uh Sleepless in Seattle? Two very important things. One is Meg Ryan's fishtail braid, which was a very popular hairstyle in the 90s. It's a little bit different than a regular braid. It's more intricate because there's like more strands that you weave together. And then hers is like all loose. So I just wanted to point that out. Fishtail braid. We should bring those back. And there are so many bad flower arrangements in this movie. It's... I... I don't understand what's going on with these flowers. They're crazy looking. Like real like, flowers or fake flowers? Yeah, the real flowers. Just poorly, and they're just poorly arranged. Poorly arranged. And not even like, so when a lot of people, when they get flowers, they get home and they just plonk them in a vase. And they're like, I got some flowers. But really what you should do is you should give them a fresh cut. You should like arrange them nicely because the way that it's tied together for the bouquet isn't necessarily going to translate really well into the vase. And also you want to use a vase that's like the right height for the stem length that you got and the fullness of the bouquet. Anyway, all of these things are not happening in this movie. Like they're in the wrong sized vessels. But then also like there's one on her desk that is just you guys i don't know what's <laughs> happening i just found it so distracting and upsetting and i could not let this episode end before mentioning it well i appreciate your commitment to the flower report both on instagram and in film so thank mm-hmm. you you know and i did last night when i was watching this i was watching the credits and i clocked whoever the greens person was on this movie and i didn't write it down and i should have because i need to call them out that was a bad Bad yeah, dreams. I mean, this is a professional Hollywood film with, like, yeah. you know, real actors, and I'm sure they got great catering. I am wondering now if, and I'm just spitballing here, but if, like, the bad flower arrangements were on purpose, like, purposely kind of subverting the conventions of the rom-com, like, just in the set dressing, because now that I'm thinking about it, like, there are always lots of beautiful flowers in romantic comedies, and I'm thinking, like, maybe they were like, let's make the flowers bad. Hmm. I mean, it could be. An interesting choice. Subconsciously you know, just affecting you as you're watching it. Well, let's chalk it up to that. Well, Carrie, you have wistful thinking. Yesterday, you just put out your third and final spooky October movie, Idle Hands. What do you have planned? Do you know what you have planned yet for November? No, we don't. Well, every other Thursday, you can you can learn alongside all of us as Kara and Jordan go back into the childhood memories, go back to the, the, the age when they were Jonah, and, you know, just listening to Beatles records backwards. Is that as good, all grown up? Uh, and then, Mike, you have a new episode coming out of your show on Sunday. What's your November 3rd episode? Oh, that's right. So uh, we're going to Hogwarts this this fall and uh, we're going to be checking out the prisoner of Azkaban over at the wizarding world of Harry Potter so Alfonso Cuaron definitely going to have one guest for that show hopefully going to have two guests for that show so uh, stay tuned and check it out including one that hopefully uh, enjoyed our dissection of one of her favorite movies in this episode she shall be she shall remain nameless but you shall remain nameless but I'm but I'm hoping to get a real Harry Potter expert consultant on that 
program. So fingers crossed. Well, Kyra, thank you so much for joining us. You'll be back before too long on a couple of these episodes. I don't know when, but you can also check out Kara on our Too Fast, Too Forever lap, this entire lap, watching all of the Fast and Furious movies for the very first time. This upcoming Tuesday the 5th, you will be talking about uh, Fast and Furious number 4 from 2009. So get excited. And again, Kara, thank you. Well, thanks for having me. For all things Hanks from the Memories, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, hanks at cageclub.me. Come back in two weeks for Philadelphia, Hanks' first of two, I want to say. Best Actor Oscar Academy Award wins back-to-back, that and Forrest Gump, so that's going to be very exciting. So come back in two weeks for that. Go check out Cruise Club. Last week was Mission Impossible 2. Next week is Vanilla Sky, so go check that out on the other feed, the Cruise Club feed, because Fridays are for fun. But go do those things, Hanks of the Memories, Cruise Club, all 25, actually 26 shows now, because Mike and I have, for some reason, started another podcast, the Elvis Presley Viva Pod Vegas podcast, release schedule, who knows, Uh, go check that out, that should be up soon or now, anywhere you get podcasts, Uh, me and Mike watching all of Elvis Presley's 31 movies from the 50s and 60s with some special guests that you know and you love, including one who might have been on our show this evening. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Cara Gale Regan of the Wistful Thinking Podcast. And we'll see you next time for Philadelphia, right here on Hanks for the Memory. Give me a kiss to build a dream on And my imagination will drive upon that kiss Sweetheart, I ask no more than this A kiss to build a dream on Where is Seattle? Right. Where's Baltimore? Ah, it's right there!